John chapter 8 as we continue this morning <laughs> through the Gospels as chronologically as we can figure out. It's been a blessing and I'm so thankful that you've uh, been on this journey with me and we hope to see what the Lord has for us this morning. I know he's going to teach us something. Uh, we find ourselves in a very familiar passage. If you've been in church any length of time, surely you've heard a message from this passage. And those, honestly, are some of the most difficult ones for me to preach because I feel like I'm just sharing a Sunday school lesson with you. But as I read this over and over and over and over and give about 20 more overs in that, God brought out some wonderful truths, and I hope to share those with you. And, and maybe the Lord would bring out some even on top of that in your mind, and you could bring those to our fellowship groups Wednesday night and discuss this with, with your group. We're in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 in our series, No Ordinary Man. I've, I've uh, titled this message, for lack of, a, of a, a better one, Truth and Self-Righteousness. Truth and Self-Righteousness. It, it ends off, just to kind of let you know where in history we are, we believe it ends off the verse before, makes sense, right? In John seven fifty three, it says, And every man went unto his own house. We know, if, you know or maybe you don't know, but... Let me remind you where we're at. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus had traveled down to the feast, one of the three annual feasts that every Jewish male had to go to. He did not want to go to this one because it was deep in the heart of hostile territory. The Jews were very bold, the Jewish leadership very bold about killing him. Several times he had to avoid this because it was not time for him to die yet. And he's at this feast. We, you can chime in uh, to last week's live stream or even on the podcast and see that, uh, hear that message um, about, from, through John chapter 7 on God's timetable. Now, here we are past that. We're in John chapter 8, and it very, very possibly is still during this feast. It's hard to tell exactly uh, what time period this is. We know it's after, um, after the day before, okay? It's after the, the confrontation that Jesus had with the, with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they tried to catch him. They tried to take him. They couldn't do it. And this was the instance where Nicodemus stood up and said, do we, do we try a man without hearing him first? And, of course, the leadership shut him down immediately, saying, uh, basically, are, are you a Galilean? I mean, do you know this man? You know that no prophet comes from Galilee. Of course, he wasn't from Galilee, right? Um, he was from Bethlehem. That's where he was born. And it says, and every man went to his own house. And that, that's, what, that's what people in religious power do. They really don't care many times what they're teaching, whether it's right or wrong. They care that everybody stays in line. And that's exactly no different than what just happened here. Now we see in John chapter 8, let's read it together in verse number 1. We're going to read 11 verses if you'd follow along with me. I'm reading from the King James Version. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are these thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Would you join with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to teach us this morning? Father, would you remove this morning the multiple times we've heard this as a Sunday school lesson? Would you remove any uh, stereotypes we've accepted about people? Would you remove any thing that would keep us distracted or unfocused this morning as this story unfolds before us? Lord, and we know that this is not just a story. This is a historical account of God interacting with man. Lord, we want to know you. Lord, if we're a child of God in this room, Father, we want to understand our Father. We want to understand how you think and act. Lord, if, if we're not a child of God in this room, if we've never been saved, Lord, if we know what's good for us, Father, we also want to hear about this man who was the savior of the world, how God came in the flesh and laid down his life for the sins of all mankind, including mine. Lord, we love you. Would you teach us? Father, may the responses to your teaching truly honor and glorify you. In your name I ask, amen. So John chapter eight, we'll stay there for most of the morning this, this morning, as you know, we usually do. And I'll have some other scriptures on the screen. I think many of us were familiar, right, with today's account. How many have heard this account before? Anybody? A few? Yeah, quite a few of us. And because it has been used so many different ways in, in Christianity, you know, um, most of the time we hear it in reference to that famous phrase we saw right in the middle of the passage, he that is without sin cast the first stone. I mean, we've heard that tons of times, right, in all sorts of venues. Many times it's almost certainly used to condemn those who would stand in judgment over somebody else as if we hadn't sinned and we'd done nothing wrong and we're going to judge somebody else that has. In some situations, we've actually taken that to the opposite end where we're not willing to say truth to anybody because we don't want to condemn that person. We've just totally alleviated the need for loving confrontation and truth and love, honestly. So as we're thinking about those things, Let's bring this story to life. Now, I want you to understand what's really going on here, and then we're going to pull out um, seven ideas, and you have them there if, if you have a, uh, one of these, okay? Hopefully you got one today. If you have one of these, the points to the message are always on the inside with fill in the blanks there. But we're going to draw some parallels here, and I think it's going to be a help to us. What is happening here, though? Jesus has just left his confrontation at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. First thing he does, next day, goes up into the Mountain of Olives. And this was not uncommon for the Lord. We find him regularly taking time apart, whether it be prayer, time of stillness and silence to get away, no doubt to get away in this instance from the incessant opposition he seemed to be going under. I mean, you and I would not last very long in this. I mean, we, we hate... We hate to be disliked. Think, think if you were disliked everywhere you went in some form or fashion. 
You always were meeting with people who did not want you there, did not like you, what you were teaching, and to take it much worse, for some reason these guys that are trying to kill him seemed to show up every gathering, every single gathering. It just was without fail. That's our Lord. So he goes up into the mountain of olives, and he gets some time alone. But he's got his priorities. Early that same morning, he arrives at the temple. Back, that's what makes us think it's probably still during the Feast of Tabernacles. He arrives back at the temple, and he starts to teach. It doesn't take long, for he, he gathers a crowd. That's what he does everywhere he goes. He gathers a crowd. It did not take very much time, we can guess, in that crowd that here come the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, so faithful in their unfaithfulness. They just wouldn't let it drop. Everywhere he went, opposition. It's, I, I, I encountered this, this this weekend. There's a pastor that we, we respect and love who seems to come under a lot of opposition. And, and my, my thought was, I mean, do people have nothing better to do? I mean, they just write these blogs and incessant lists of things that they have against this person? I mean, get a life, seriously. It just bugs me to no end. But it's not... It's not any different, and this is way worse, actually. This is the Son of God. He's in the temple, he's teaching, and the scribes and Pharisees, his faithful non-friends, walk in the room. But this time, they're not alone. This time, they brought a woman. And they bring the woman right into the middle of the teaching, and they set her right in the middle of everything. Just totally arrogant and crass. You can just imagine them walking in their, in their pomp, and their procession, everybody has to move out of the way. I mean, this is the scribes and the Pharisees. They're here. And they show up and they bring this woman and they set her into the midst. And yeah, they're respectful towards Jesus. They call him master. Yeah, like they really believed it. Of course they didn't. But they knew their protocols. And they knew it would not go over well for them not to call him master in front of all those people that he's teaching. They bring this woman to the gathering. They set her in the middle. And just imagine from this woman's perspective, she's just standing there. Everybody's looking at her. And they declare to Jesus, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, you and I would not argue that that's sin. We all know that that's sin. But just imagine if somebody caught you in sin and the very next meeting at our church brought you up here to the front and told me in front of everybody what you had done. Might give us a little inkling of what this woman is going through. Here she is right in the middle. Now Jesus, as they declare this to him, the Bible says he stoops down to the ground. We have an idea it's probably a sandy ground. He stoops down to the ground and he begins to write something in the sand. The Pharisees and the scribes, he doesn't give them a response, so they, they keep on going. They keep on asking him. They keep on accusing her. We don't have exactly what their words were at this time, but Jesus finally stands up and says that famous statement we all know, he that is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And it didn't take long, the Bible says, before one by one, they put their stones down and they left, from the eldest to the youngest, until when Jesus stands up, it's just him and this woman. They're the only ones left. She's still standing there. She didn't run. She's standing there, probably in disbelief, I imagine. And he says to her, are those who condemn you, are they gone? Are they, there's nobody here? She says, no man, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. 
We know the story, we're familiar with it, but there is so much in here. You know, I was thinking of, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, there are so many phrases in Christianity that I have adopted. You know, I'm not from a foreign country. I didn't, I didn't grow up hearing uh, Jesus for the first time when I was 21. You know, I heard about him all my entire life. So I have all sorts of Christian cliches in my head. And from years of preaching and teaching and being around Christians, hearing on the radio, hearing Christian movies, etc., that I've accepted. And some of them, uh, I know, I know that I have not really even thought through. And, and here's one of them we're going to share this morning that I began thinking through in the past couple weeks. It's this concept of following Jesus. We've been hearing about it quite a bit. I don't know if you realize that as we're traveling through the Gospels. We hear this concept over and over and over again. But maybe we haven't really thought through what it actually means. And I think this is a typical human nature thing to do. I know I've done it before. I was thinking of one time when I was first in the ministry. I was a young youth pastor, green and self-confident. That's a dangerous combination right there. I, uh, I got up and I preached. It was one of my first messages to adults. And I preached in our church there up in New York. And I remember I, I was, you know, probably waxing eloquent. I don't know. I don't even remember what the message was. But I remember I got to the end of it, and a very respected man came up to me out of the audience. And I had used a phrase in the message without really even realizing it, a phrase that um, kind of represented somebody who would be like a teacher's pet, would be kind of kissing up and getting on the good side of everybody. You know, I kind of used that phrase, and it was a phrase I'd used all my life, but in a much more crass way, honestly, and I, I thought I gave the G-rated version, honestly, but I got up at the end, didn't think anything of it, I got up at, down at the end, people are greeting, you know, thanking, being very kind, and he walks up, you know, he's very encouraging, compliments the message, and, and he says, I just wanted to, I just wondered if you'd ever thought, thought about what, and he, he named the phrase, and I'm not going to name it for you, he named the phrase, and he said, have you ever thought about what that meant? And I, I tend to really take people's questions seriously. When you ask me a question, um, I, I try not to say, oh, everything's fine. You know, I try to actually think through my answer so it's at least a somewhat honest answer. You know? And that's just kind of in my nature. And I, it was no different then. And I thought I began to think through the phrase I'd used with him standing there in front of me. And all of a sudden, this sick feeling comes into my stomach. <laughs> And I began to realize what the phrase meant. And I couldn't believe I used it in a gospel message. And you're wondering what it is now, right? But sorry, I'm not going to say it. You can see me afterwards if you want to know. But <laughs> this sick feeling came over me from that time forward with that loving confrontation. I have been super careful to make sure I think through all of these phrases I've used all my life or I hear, not just to assume that I know what something means because I've used it all my life or it seems like a good phrase. Maybe you've done that thing with uh, that same thing with the phrase following Jesus. I mean, what exactly does that mean? I don't know if you know this, but we, we see it all through the scriptures, this idea in John 1:43, the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and said unto him, what? Follow me. We see it in Matthew 4, 19, and Jesus said unto them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. These are all familiar passages to us. Matthew 8, 22, but Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. This is recent for us, right? In Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom and he said unto him, you guessed it, follow me. Matthew 16, 24, then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, give to the poor, thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus said in his parable, and I'm sorry, in his illustration uh, of himself and his relations with mankind, telling, him, telling us about the, who he is, the great shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. But what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, if someone asked you what it meant, what would you tell them? Would you be able to explain it to them? If, and this is one of the great aspects of really teaching, teaching, you learn so much more teaching than you ever did listening. That's just the way it is. And if you had to teach this to somebody else, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And you had to tell them something that actually was true and made sense. What exactly would you say? If you couldn't explain it, it's probable that you may not understand it well if you can't explain it. And if you don't understand it well, maybe is it possible that we really haven't thought much deeper than the actual phrase, following Jesus. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus. I mean, I'm a Christian. Why wouldn't I follow Jesus? But what does that mean? I've been seeing this concept in my studies the past few weeks, and I've been thinking about it a lot. And then we came on our passage today. What does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, we, we know that following Jesus doesn't mean exactly what it meant to the disciples, right? I mean, they were physically to follow Jesus. They're walking right after him. They're following him. But there's other aspects of following that I think bear thinking about in our context. And it was true of them also, even though we're lacking the physical walking after Jesus because he is not physically here. He is here, though. He is and he said, matter of fact, it's really actually beneficial that I go because now I can send the Comforter. I can send the Holy Spirit, and he'll be with you always. He'll, he'll be with you. You know, it was Jesus who said at, on the Great Commission, he says, I'm going, I'm leaving. He says, but lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the earth. What, how, you know, as one of our pastors this week commented so, so greatly, he said, only Jesus could say something like that. I'm leaving, but I'll be with you forever. You know, that was Jesus. And what was he saying? The Holy Spirit's coming. He's me. He's another person of the Godhead. God is going to be with you. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, for the disciples, part of it physically was following him. He called them just like he called Philip, just like he called Matthew, follow me. And they did. They got their two little feet and started following, physically doing that. What does that mean for us? Well, as we're following the Lord, we're keeping in mind where he would go and where he would not go. And if we're physically following our God, we want to pattern our life after that as well. If God wouldn't go there, Jesus wouldn't go there, I don't want to go there. If Jesus would go there, if Jesus is calling, if the Holy Spirit's leading me to go there, I want to make sure I do that. That's part of following Jesus. What about this idea of imitating? We, we follow their actions. Following what you're doing, we, you know, they don't have these around much anymore. If you go on YouTube, actually, there's a couple pretty funny ones, but they used to call them a mime, where they would imitate exactly what a certain person or a situation would do, and they're quite good at it, most of them. This is this idea of following their actions, watching as we open the Word of God, watching what Jesus does. That's what, one of the reasons I love studying the Gospels, to see what God did and how he acted when he was on this earth. 
because as I'm following him, I want to imitate that. I want to copy him, just like any good son would want to do to his father. I want to copy those good things my dad is doing. And what about this idea of understanding Jesus? Understanding the way God thinks, oh, yeah, I follow you. I follow you. What, is, what does that mean when we use that phrase? We're meaning I understand what you're saying. I, I'm tracking with you. I, I'm right in line with what you're thinking and saying and, and why you're doing what you're doing. You know, we keep track of how, how, they, how Jesus did these things or, or why he did what he did so that I can imitate him and follow him in that way. Following has so much involved when we talk about following Jesus And in the text this morning, we catch a glimpse of this, a pretty big glimpse, I think. And I've kind of separated it out uh, into those who would follow Jesus and those who would not follow Jesus. And we have have both groups represented here. We see in John 14, 8 and 9, Philip uh, says here unto Jesus, show us the Father and it is enough for us, Jesus said unto him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What was Jesus saying? He's saying, the Father is right here. So as we open the Gospels this morning, we are seeing God in the flesh. You want to know how to follow Jesus? Find out how they followed him here. Listen to what he was teaching. Understand how he's acting. See where he went and where he didn't go, where he was willing to go and where he wasn't willing to go. Understand the reasons that he says things to certain people. Study when God shows you his heart on things. Know his heart on things. Dig deeper. Dig deeper because you want to follow. This morning, we're going we're to break it into two, two groups of people as we go down through this text. We're going to break it into, number one, the followers of Jesus. All right? That would be those of us who we see Jesus in action, and we want to follow his lead. We want to imitate. We want to know why he's doing what he's doing. And we want to we understand these things so we can follow him. And then the opposite of that would be those who do not want to follow Jesus. And we're just, for lack of a better label this morning, we're going to call them the stone throwers this morning. So we have the followers of Jesus, and we have the stone throwers, representing a group of people that are in this story that intended to do just that physically, throw stones. And let's see if we can draw some application. First thing we see... Followers of Jesus are drawn to ministering to others. And as we're going down through this list, I'd like you to identify which ones of these line up with who you are. Which ones of these resonate the most with you personally? Followers of Jesus are drawn to ministering to others. What do we see here in in verse number 1, chapter 8 of John? Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And this is so like the Lord. Everywhere he goes, wanting to share with others, wanting to help others, wanting to teach them, to minister to them, whether it be meeting a physical need, a spiritual need, whether talking to those that nobody else is talking to, the ones that everybody else has forsaken, Jesus has a desire to minister and we find this same, very same case, that we naturally have that desire. When God saves you, when you've been born again, uh, you see somebody in need, you may not help them, but it's not because you don't have a desire to. You have an innate desire to help people. And that's, that's the Lord living in you. What are you doing about that? 
Followers of Jesus, they're drawn to ministering to others. Jesus comes out of the mountain. He arrives early in the temple. He arrived to help people. And as a result, what happened? Well, he wasn't sitting there by himself, that's for sure. He drew a crowd. You know, that's what happens. When people find out that you care about them, when people find out that you want to help, they want to be around you. You attract people that way. They love, people love to be around people that show genuine concern and care for them. So if we're following Jesus, let's ask ourselves, when we're around other human beings, do we repel them or do we attract them? Say, well, I just don't have that type of personality. That's not what we're talking about. People love to be with people that are ministering. Here we see in the next verse, we see now stone throwers, all right? Stone throwers, they choose their own agenda above the well-being of others. Oh, they actually have the opposite thing in mind. Uh, In verse number three, what happened here? And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? I mean, just, just see the circumstance. They really did not care about this woman at all. Now, they brought a woman with them, but it wasn't because they cared. They weren't trying to help her in any way, shape, or form. They bring her into a house of worship. They set her in the middle of a group of people, innocent or guilty. I mean, honestly, it's hard to imagine anything but selfish motives on their part. I mean, can, can you just imagine this? They didn't actually care, honestly, about righteousness or judgment. We find this out later. You know, how do we know that they were not out for justice here? There was no man present. Last time I checked, it takes two to commit adultery. But they just brought the woman. They weren't interested in justice here. They were making a point. You know, one pastor said, you know, he wouldn't be surprised if they were actually the root of the whole problem. They maybe even had the man go and do it. Had the man tempt that woman to commit adultery just so they could prove their point. We don't know exactly, but we know that they were not here because they cared. They were not here because they ministered uh, to her personally, wanted to help her fix her life, help her rid her life of her bad habits and her sinful vices. That's not why she was here. And as we look at these stone throwers, as they were getting ready to do, do we stand in judgment against other people? By the way, this is not a verse saying we can't judge righteous judgment. We can't determine black and white, right and wrong. That's not at all what this is saying. It's talking about a hard attitude. It's talking about your motives in judging the sins of other people. Are you trying to help them or are you trying to prove a point? Are you really concerned about them getting right or do you just want to be right? And that's really what the stone throwers here are doing. They want to prove something. They want to prove Jesus wrong. They want to make him look bad, and they want to be right, all rooted in self. The next one we see is actually still with the stone throwers. That's number three. Stone throwers find Bible verses that fit their agenda. Oh, isn't it so easy to do this? Did you know I could get up and I could pick just about any topic of any sinful issue, and I could find Bible verses against it? Take it a step further. I could find Bible verses that seem to be against just about anything. 
And I could even find quite a few Bible verses that would seem to be for all the things that I like. That's why we preach expositorily here. We want to stay true to the word of God, to what he intended, what he meant. Here, they pull out some scripture. Very interesting. You thought that was just something we do in America. No, no, not so. They started a long time ago. Verse number five. They bring her, they set the woman in the midst, and they say, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Oh, they knew their Bibles. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Jesus, you're, this woman has done this, and we want to know what you're going to do about it. What do you think? I mean, share with us, oh wise one, what you're going to do about this when uh, the whole time they really weren't interested or even looking for advice. This was a test. You know, we know because the, the narrative says here, they said this tempting him, but we also know it, if we just look at the Bible, where did they get this law? In Deuteronomy 22, 22, the, the law says, the Mosaic law, if a man be found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. You know, these leaders were not, not, not seeking for resolution in this process. We already see that. If Jesus answered, he's, he's, he's seemingly, he never actually is, but he seemingly is in this pickle. They may be thinking, we've, we've got him on this one. I mean, if he answers, well, let's have compassion on this woman. Let's, uh, I mean, you know, uh, let's, uh, let's be forgiving and merciful uh, towards her sin. Then, of course, hey, well, you don't care about the Mosaic Law. I thought you were a master of Israel. I thought you're you're a you're a um, you know God in the flesh, claiming to be God, but you don't care about God's law. I mean, what's wrong with you? But if he said, "You're right, condemn this woman. She deserves." I mean, this was Mosaic law. She deserves to be put to death. Then the suffering Savior, the compassionate one, the one that was a friend of sinners. Now they're getting a skewed view of who God is and. How many know that over and over throughout the entire Bible, God has actually killed people for misrepresenting who he was? God is very concerned that we see him properly. What did Jesus tell to Peter when they went into the town, the people wanted the taxes from him, and even though he didn't owe any taxes, what did he tell Peter? We're going to pay this tax. Why? Lest we should cause them to stumble. And this is the king telling the servants, I don't want to do this because the servants might stumble. He's very concerned that people understand who he is, that they see a clear picture of God in his person. And we see that here in Jesus Christ, merciful, compassionate. Be careful. Be careful when you use scripture verses to prove your point. Number one, let's be so careful that they actually mean what we're using them for. But when you use them... Would you examine your motives? It's not about being right. That's not what it's about. We can take something so good as in scriptural truth and make it about pride and arrogance and do the, allow that scripture to do the opposite of what God intended it to do. He intended it to, to be laying into a, a heart, good ground, fertile heart, a soft heart, so it could grow and bring forth fruit. And instead, what have we done in our pride and arrogance? We've 
harden that heart. Not only did that truth not penetrate the heart, but it really just gave evidence of who we really are and our motives. Stone throwers, they, they do that. They, they find Bible verses to fit their agenda, to prove their points, because you can make the Bible say just about anything you want it to if you just pick out a phrase or a verse. Number four, we see next, followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus learn to recognize and then tune out the dangerous influence of stone throwers because they're all over. This influence is everywhere. Why? Because men and women are everywhere. Men and women unchanged, rooted in their pride, living for themselves. They're everywhere we turn. He says in uh, chapter 8, verse number 6, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. It's interesting, Jesus seems to ignore them here. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it has a little phrase there in italics. It says, as though he heard them not. And this is one of the things um, that I do like about the King James Version a lot is that they're very honest in their translating. When you see a word in italics, that means they added that. That was not in the original uh, canon. Okay, they added that to help when you went from Greek into English to help it flow for us so we could understand it. But make no mistake, that was not in there doesn't change the truth in here, okay? Here they are tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Jesus stoops down and writes in the ground. He's just writing. Do you know what he wrote? You don't know? I don't know. We don't know what he wrote. And we can be guaranteed this. If, if we thought we knew, we would be wrong. God would have told us if we needed to know what was written in the sand. I've heard many messages, and they centered around what Jesus wrote in the sand. The odd thing is, we don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand, so what was that? Maybe a well-intentioned person putting words in Jesus' mouth to prove a point. Be so careful. Be so careful. We do not know what he said. Hebrew tradition, Hebrew tradition says that he was writing the sins of all the men in the group. I don't know. You don't know. So we're not going to worry about that. But we are going to do is what, what is said here. Jesus stoops down, and he does not answer them. I mean, it could seem a little bit rude. You weren't actually allowed to talk or act like this to someone in such high authority. But Jesus did this. He does not um, give any attention to their accusation. You know, he, he's not... You know, the influence of those who are quick to bring out the faults and failures of others, there's a great influence there. It's like Jesus is not going to add any potency to that influence. He, he begins to put water on the fire almost immediately without saying a word. He just, they're, they're accusing. He just reached down, he's just, he's marking in the sand. Don't know if he's writing, don't know what he's doing. He's just not, you know, it almost, and it does exactly this, it makes him <laughs> ask even more probably was annoying a little bit to them. And he, uh, well, that's for the next point there. But, you know, it's interesting. Let me, let me show you this in Matthew 16. We, I think we've talked about this before. Matthew 16, verse 16, we, we come to a, a passage here. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And we know that Jesus talked about after that, you know, what these guys thought they had forgot the bread. Remember, they're traveling across the water. And so they didn't get what Jesus was saying. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that said, he knows we forgot the bread. You know, <laughs> the guilty conscience right there. And they go on to that. And they could not get what he was saying until he confronts them on it in verse number 12. He says, then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This influence of those who would throw stones, those who would point out the faults in others, it is such a pervasive influence. Um, I think because it strikes, it's my opinion, it strikes at the core of who we are. You know, it can't help in the moment make us feel better about ourselves if we're able to put someone else down. I mean, I've caught myself doing it unintentionally many times. I mean, I can't remember the last time I did it intentionally, but I, I still catch myself from time to time. Elevating myself without even thinking about it, without even catching it, that old self just rises right up, wants to make myself look good at the expense of somebody else. It's a heavy influence. It pervades everything we do we all want to matter. We all want to be important. We all long to be significant in some way, shape, or form. You have to learn how to tune out that influence. It's, it's everywhere. It's being preached now. It's being taught to our children in their schools. Self, self, self. We even coined the term self-love now. It's just not in the Bible. It's not the way Jesus acted. Next thing we see. In verse number seven, we see followers of Jesus remember their own depravity. This is not meant to be uh, depressing, as some of these self-help gurus might say. This is not something you need to dwell on, your own depravity. I mean, come on. In verse number seven, though, what does he say? So when they continued asking him, well, he was silent, but that wasn't going to shut them up. I mean, that's the way it is. Uh, when we're opinionated and, and we're trying to preach our opinion to somebody else, I mean, we started that whole thing for a reason, so we're not going to get we're not going to get batted down very easily. We're going to keep on with that opinion until we're either vindicated or embarrassed or something. Followers of Jesus, they're different, though. Look at what Jesus did here. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, "He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her." And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is interesting, even though Jesus himself had no depravity whatsoever, what did he do? He drew attention to their depravity. He didn't even tell them they couldn't cast stones. He just said, don't forget who you are. That's what a follower of Jesus does. We're not, we're not trying to forget who we were. We're not running from our failures and our weaknesses. We're well aware of them. And that drives us to the throne of grace for help in time of need, for humility, because we understand there's no way any of us who are saved in here would be where we are if it wasn't for God and his grace and his goodness, his forgiveness and his mercy. We want to be reminded of that. Why? Because our self wants to cover it up, wants to make us feel good, wants to put us back on the throne, wants to drive everything ourselves. Follow Jesus wants to be remembered. We, we know that we need this. We know that we need Jesus to tell us what he just told them. Hey, as you're going to point out the sin in somebody else, just don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what I did for you. Don't forget your own depravity. 
says in verse 9, and here, here's, here's my proof text, by the way, for me, um, that it doesn't really matter if we know what Jesus wrote here or not. I don't, I don't think it was what he wrote that produced the result. Here's what produced the result, what he said. Verse eight, chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, And they which heard it, all the versions have this, it's not just King James, they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Isn't this just like the word of God? We hear the word of God, it rests in our hearts, and we don't need some fancy illustration. We don't need Jesus to bend down in the sand and to write out the sins of every person in the circle, although he certainly could have done that. We don't need Jesus to write down some uh, really cliche little formulas to really make for a, a great message, although he certainly could have done that. We just need him to speak. And we need to hear what he says, and we need to apply what he says. And that's what they did. He spoke, even those hardened Pharisees applied what he said. They applied, and they started to leave, one by one. That's number six. Stone throwers would rather leave than admit they're wrong. Stone throwers would rather leave than admit they were wrong. Here's what they did in verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. I mean, what just happened here? We know physically what just happened here. What Jesus said convicted the hearts of these men that were standing in the circle to the point that every single one of them left one by one, starting from the oldest and ending with the youngest. Say, why did they do it in that order? I don't, really don't know, honestly. One pastor said he thought because the oldest had, had more, more sins to, to think about than the youngest. I don't know. Once again, we don't know. The conviction set in and they left. But notice this. Nobody apologized. Nobody came to Jesus and thanked him for that word. Nobody repented that we see here. They just left. This is, this is a dangerous thing. And please understand, when God speaks to you and I, we have a responsibility to respond. But the word of God is powerful whether we respond or not. These men didn't respond. They just reacted. Well, all right, he got me. There's nothing, nothing I can do about this. I'm convicted. So I'm just going to leave. Maybe it didn't even cross their minds that they should humble themselves and repent. I mean, that's how pervasive our own pride and arrogance is, is it not? These things don't even cross our minds. We're so wrapped up in ourselves, our way, our thinking. We're right. And it just oozes out of everything we do, just like these men. What a shame. What a true revelation of their motives for what they're doing. Way worse than us being judgmental and condescending to someone else would be to be confronted on an issue and to walk away unchanged. To have truth be given to us in its purest and most unadulterated form. I mean, he spoke right to the heart. They didn't even have to stretch the application. I mean, he applied it directly to where they were right then. That's how God does applies it directly to where we are, and they walked away unchanged. Scary, scary. Lastly, we see followers of Jesus can speak the truth without condemning the person. 
Let me, let me just read this. I'm not sure, after I had written this and done the PowerPoints and everything, printed everything out, I'm not sure that condemning is the right word there. Uh, in our language, that can have a couple different interpretations. I, I would, condemning here is in the sense of looking down on someone. I mean, we ought to never compromise that sin is sin, wicked, filthy, and vile. It's destroying us and destroying everyone around us and is the root why each and every one of us needs to run to the Lord for salvation. Absolutely, we should condemn sin. But this idea of condemning a person, looking down on them as if we are better than them because we've been saved, or we would never do something like that. Followers of Jesus, because we are following Jesus in his way, we want to pattern what he does here. Check it out in verse number 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go. Well, he didn't end there. Neither, neither do I condemn thee. Go. And by the way, stop doing that. Stop sinning. He's specifically talking about what she had done. Go and sin no more. You know, the accusation of this woman wasn't false. Jesus just uh, confirmed it right there, actually, for us. Well, was the adultery they caught her in, was it wicked and sinful? Of course it was. I mean, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Not that there's only ten sins you can commit. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Absolutely, wicked, sinful. Was it direct law of God's violation? I'm sorry, direct violation of God. I got that one backwards. A direct violation of God's law and God's holiness? Of course it was. So why didn't Jesus pronounce judgment on her? Surely she deserved it. Because there's more than one side to the Lord. And just like he did, you and I, we can tell someone the truth. We can confront someone on their sin because they need that just like we need it in our depravity. Because we understand that, we can look on them as, I'm not better than you. Listen, I just want to help you. You understand, um, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. You need that. Child of God, brother and sister in Christ, do you understand what you are doing is going to take you down a road that is going to end you in a spiritual ditch? Do you understand... I mean, you haven't been here, you haven't been to church in three or four weeks and, and you're, uh, you're doing this or you're doing that. Do you under, I want to help you as a brother. I want to help you with this. We've lost that art. We've accepted in America that to tell someone and confront someone on their sin means we're condemning them. We're judging them. And I'm here to tell you by Jesus' example, as a follower of Jesus, we should be able to do both. We should be able to lovingly confront understanding who we are, but understanding who they are and that they need loving confrontation. They need to understand their sin just like we did. We ought not back away from that. And the key is not forgetting that we were there as well. The very same thing. Followers of Jesus, they speak the truth without condemning. Love, compassion, mercy, Kindness, if that is what accompanies truth, how powerful that is. When truth becomes destructive, and it can be destructive, it's when truth is given without mercy. Oh, I'll tell you the truth. 
I'm going to rip you up one side, down the other. I'm going to tell you exactly how it is because that's just the type of guy I am. You know? Well, Jesus could have done it better than anybody. He could have told every dark little secret of every man in that circle. He could have turned around and done the same thing to the woman. But he didn't. He drew attention to what they needed to have drawn attention to, but he said it with love and grace. That's our Lord, and it's so characterized. We know the verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. It was love that drove that. Love. God loved the world that he gave Jesus, who is sitting in the middle of this circle in our text today, showing us how God acts in the face of stone throwers and how followers of Jesus should pattern themselves in the future. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what you're doing here, Lord. I know this is your word, and I've tried to faithfully help our people to understand what you did here. It's more than just amazing, Father, that you did some miraculous uh, injection of wisdom into the lives of these scribes and Pharisees and into this woman's life as well. It's more than that, Lord. You're setting a pattern for us. You're showing us how you think. You're showing us where your heart is. Lord, just like any good child, your children, we want to follow you. We want to be like you. We want to think like you. We want to pattern our lives like you. Lord, would you help us today? Father, would you show us those little spots in our heart that we like to keep hidden? Would you remind us, Lord, where you brought us from, those who are saved in here, Lord? Lord, those of us who aren't saved, we've never come to a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've never accepted by faith what you did on the cross for our sins. Now you rose from the grave three days later, proving you're God. I don't know what situation everyone in this room finds themselves in, Lord. What situation, those who are listening online, we don't, I don't know, Lord, but you do. Would you help us to respond? Lord, we love you. In your name I ask, amen. Would you stand with me?